The word of the Lord from Revelation 5. John has a vision of the resurrected Christ worshipped in heaven. Then I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped the word of God for the people of God. I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures. There's one under the seat in front of you and turn to Matthew chapter 6. That's page 859. 859. Give you a moment to turn there. We're going to have a, uh, a church-wide challenge this morning. Before you look at the text too in depth, we're going to attempt to recite the Lord's Prayer together. Now, don't panic. The words are going to be on the screen, but try not to use them, okay? We've been preaching through the Lord's Prayer. If you need to use the words on the screen, that's just fine. Uh, but if you are able to not to, let's try to recite the Lord's Prayer together. Begins our Father in heaven, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well done. Uh, Very well done. I feel like we should get a round of applause for that. Now I want you to do something, though. Look down at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 14. Which phrase that we just recited together do you not see in the text? Go ahead and answer out loud if you see it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer to any degree, every time you've heard it prayed, this phrase is included. Why? Well, without getting into all of the details, here is an answer to the question, where did this phrase come from? Are you ready? First, one branch of biblical study is called textual criticism. This is a science that helps us to get to the underlying text behind our English translations, because the Bible was not given in English, it was given in multiple languages. So why is this textual criticism needed? Well, second, because we have about 5,700 different Greek manuscripts that underlie our New Testament. And that's in addition to the 19,000 Syriac, Coptic, Aramaic, and Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. And the earliest of those manuscripts are dated to within about 100 years of when the original would have been penned or quilled, if you will. So third, within those manuscripts, those 2,400-something manuscripts, we have, in one scholar's words, hundreds, if in some cases, even thousands of confirmations of every line in the New Testament. Fourth, the King James Version, which is the translation that many folks memorize the Lord's Prayer from, was translated into English in 1611 from only a small portion of those manuscripts. Many of those particular manuscripts from which the KJV was translated included this phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But many more manuscripts have been discovered since 1611. And as more manuscripts were discovered, it became clear that this phrase was actually an addition to the text and not original. Now you may be thinking, Isaiah, what are you doing? Your life's work is preaching the Bible, and you're undermining the text of the Bible. Well, does this actually undermine our understanding of how much we should trust the New Testament? Should this undermine our trust in the New Testament scriptures? And the answer to that is no. This should not in any way undermine our trust. If anything... It should encourage us that in all of the copies of copies of copies of copies of copies that have been made throughout the centuries 
of the manuscripts of the New Testament, nothing was lost. Nothing. Now, minor scribal additions crept in here and there as scribes made note in the margins, and sometimes those notes were copied as part of the text, but those additions are very easy to discern through the science of textual criticism. So think about it this way. In all, with 5,700 different Greek manuscripts, when you take out the trivial differences like word order changes, Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, or clear misspellings within the text, we are clear on 99.75% of that underlying original text. 99.75% of a text that is 2,000 years old. And of the 0.25% of the text where there is still minor disagreement, not one major, major doctrine is affected. But that still leaves us with the question, where did this phrase come from? This phrase shouldn't undermine our trust in the Bible as the Word of God, but why would some scribe think it appropriate to add this phrase? And what are we to do with it this morning as we continue and nearly wrap up our series in the Lord's Prayer? Well, let's remember that the Scriptures have always been central to Christian worship, as in the sort of worship we're engaged in this morning. This prayer, the prayer of our Lord Jesus, was given very clearly to his people for corporate worship. That's one reason why I, all of the second-person pronouns in this prayer are plural. Forgive us our sins, our Father, give us this day our daily bread, Lead us not into temptation. And as the early church created liturgies or orders for worship, at some point, one particular scribe took this prayer and prepared it for public worship and decided to add a benediction from another portion of the Bible, specifically 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verses 10 through 13. And he scribbled in the margin of whatever text he was using a summary of 1 Chronicles 29. And that manuscript got copied, and that one got copied, and that one got copied, and that one got copied, until eventually it made its way into the text of the King James Version. Now, you just got a very brief introduction into textual criticism. And before we leave this drive-by lesson, let's just pull two thoughts for our encouragement. First, there is beauty here. In this way, we have a paradigm from the early church of using all of Scripture for worship, a paradigm for connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament, for demonstrating the continuity of it all, for viewing the Old Testament scriptures as for us, for our benefit. There is no hesitation in the mind of the early church 
in attaching an Old Testament scripture concerning the nature of God to the words of the Lord Jesus on prayer. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing. So there's beauty here. But second, there's providence here. In God's providence in church history, he orchestrated, get this, he orchestrated the discovery of manuscripts in such an order that perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Christians have memorized the Lord's Prayer with a benediction from the Old Testament that connects us immediately to the entire story of Scripture. And let me ask you, from what you know of God, was this a mistake on his part? No. This was all part of his plan, his gracious providence. It was not an oversight. So what are we going to do with this text this morning? Well, this. Let's allow God in his providence through history to direct us from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 all the way to the greatest of Old Testament kings, King David, in 1 Chronicles 29. So, if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 1 Chronicles 29. It'd be about halfway through, maybe a quarter of the way through your Bibles. I don't have the particular page number for you. But before we read this text, let me ask you a question. What sort of authority do you want to follow? The cultural air we breathe would have us believe that we are our own authority. There's no higher authority than self. I think it's kind of ironic that in order for the culture to tell us that, the culture has to view itself as authoritative over us to tell us who or what our authority ought to be. There's an irony there. And this inconsistently ought to lead us to recognize this fact. We will all follow some authority in this life. So the question is not, will you follow authority? The question is rather, what sort of authority, what kind of authority do you want to follow? Some of us last year watched the proceedings surrounding Queen Elizabeth II's death, a monarch who reigned for 70 years. That's remarkable. But she died. She's not alive. And King Charles III will be crowned on May 6th of this year. But that man is 74 years old. It is certain he will not be reigning for seven decades. He's going to die sooner or later. But let's think more locally. Whether you voted for Obama or Trump or Biden in any of the last three elections, you have undoubtedly been disappointed. Even if your candidate sat in the White House for a time. And even if your candidate takes the oath of office in January of 2025, eventually you will be disappointed. Because the reality is this. Human leadership 
always disappoints or dies. I think there are some universal human longings when it comes to authority and the kind of authority we long for. Universal longing number one, we all want to follow an authority who will care for us. Are you sick of following authority that seems to just be in it for self? Are you tired of following a party or a group that really just seems more concerned about keeping power than about caring for you as a follower of that group? And some of you, due to the brokenness of the world and the sinfulness of man, you perhaps have never experienced what it is to be truly cared for by an authority figure. And tragically, others of you have experienced the trauma of an authority figure who has sacrificed caring for others and become spiritually or physically or emotionally or sexually manipulative or abusive. So it's only natural for we who know our weaknesses and frailty and the dangers around us to want to follow someone who will genuinely care for us as we follow them. So for a moment, can you imagine the bliss in following this kind of leader? One who genuinely cares for you. Universal longing number two. We all want to follow an authority who makes and keeps good promises. I hope you'll Excuse all the references to our particular political context this morning, but hey, I'm not above cherry-picking in application. How often have you placed your hope in a party or a candidate only to find that their power is actually limited? Only to find that no matter what the candidate or the party, they neither have the wisdom nor the skill nor the authority to make good on all the wonderful promises they made on the campaign trip. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a supervisor or a boss in your workplace that never made empty promises and always delivered on whatever he or she said? What if there was an authority who promised what was truly, authentically, genuinely good all the time? And who could then have the power to make good on those good promises? Who didn't need to cut deals with the opposition? Who didn't need to make compromises that undermined their authority or undermined the goodness of what they promised? So for a minute, can you imagine the bliss of following that kind of authority? who only makes and keeps good promises. Universal longing number three. We all want to follow an authority who is honorable and beautiful in every exercise of authority. Part of my dad's story of conversion to Christianity and to faith in Jesus Christ involves corrupt politicians. He was a 
young member of the military stationed in Washington, D.C. during the Vietnam War. He's from a conservative New England family. And he watched his fellow servicemen get spit upon as they returned from serving in Vietnam. And his faith was increasingly being put in politicians, specifically Richard Nixon. Nixon. And then this little thing called Watergate happened. The superstructure that my dad had put his faith in came crumbling down. If you're not familiar with the story, President Nixon, planning for a second term, had the D.C. headquarters of the Democratic Party bugged so that he could keep tabs on the opposition. But the men doing the bugging were caught, and in this subsequent investigation by the Washington Post, they uncovered a dishonorable and deplorable abuse of power in order to keep authority. And my dad became completely disillusioned by human authority abusing power. His faith in humanity was shaken to its core. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was an authority whose every motive, every decree, every objective, every action could be objectively evaluated as good, as beautiful, as honorable. Can you imagine the bliss of following this kind of authority? No matter who you are, you want this sort of authority figure. But let's face it, even if we were able to discover such an authority, an authority who genuinely cared for us, an authority who made good on good promises, an authority whose every exercise of power was only always honorable and beautiful, it wouldn't last. Governments come and go. Supervisors get promoted or resign. Queens die. Presidents get replaced. Human leadership always disappoints or dies or both. So that brings us to the fourth universal longing. We all want to follow an authority who will never lose this kind of good authority. It's often worth stopping and asking the question, what do I want? So right now, as you're seated there, think about that question. What do you want right now in your life? My guess is part of the answer comes down to Stability, security, the lack of fragility in your life. The sort of authority we have described to this point would be good only if it continues, if it remains, so that you and I would have the confidence and security to continue to build our life upon the consistent and faithful exercise of their good and benevolent authority. 
Now, even if you believe that you may be the best authority for your life, you have to admit that you can't live up to these lofty ideals, these lofty human longings. And if you place your ultimate trust in human authority of any kind, including your own authority, for this kind of human flourishing, then you're living a very fragile life. The foundations you're building your life upon will be shaken at some point or another. So is this just a pipe dream? Are these universal longings just meant to leave us disappointed? Where do these longings come from? Where do these desires for this sort of authority find its origin? And are these dreams and desires meant to be left unfulfilled? The year was approximately 1000 B.C., give or take a couple of decades. King David had united the nation of Israel. He spent 40 years defeating Israel's enemies. And as he's nearing the end of his life and reign, he calls his entire nation together. He tells them that he has put resources aside in order to build a permanent temple for God to be worshipped. Up to this point, he'd been worshipped in a mobile tent. And David invites the entire nation to give towards this work after leading the way in example himself. And the nation responded in a ridiculously huge way. 185,000 tons, or rather 185 tons of gold, 625 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 4,000 tons of iron. It's a lot of sacrifice. Now, if David was alive today, he'd be getting all sorts of advice after such a successful capital campaign, right? He'd be making the book deals and making the rounds on the talk shows. If you can command that sort of following, you better ride that wave as long as it will keep you in power. Take the credit, publish press releases, write books about how to raise funds and influence people. But what does David do? 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Then David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, May you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens in the heavens and on earth belongs to you yours lord is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all riches and honor come from you and you're the ruler over everything power and might are in your hand and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all now therefore our god 
we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. And about a thousand years later, some unknown scribe summarizes King David's words about God's authority to the words of the one who is greater than David, to the words of Jesus. So let's connect the dots. You want to follow an authority who will care for you, right? Well, Jesus invites us to pray to our Father in heaven. And this God is the one to whom belongs the kingdom. The king of the kingdom cares for you. And all his care for you has been demonstrated once and for all upon the cross of Jesus Christ. For while we were still sinners and helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now you may have walked in here this morning thinking, God, if only I could be sure that you really love me, that you really will look out for me, that you will really care for my needs. If I could only be sure of that, then I would follow you. And Jesus, in his grace, responds to you this morning, look at my cross. The God of eternity responds to you, I proved my eternal love for you by giving my son my only son, whom I love so that you might have life. Whose is the kingdom? It belongs to our Father in heaven. And friend, you want to follow an authority who only makes good promises and then keeps those good promises, right? Well, this God, our Father in heaven, is the King who is all-powerful. His goodness and sovereignty are not at odds. We can be assured that his promises and purposes are good because he's good. He is capable of fulfilling all of his, his good purposes and promises because the greatness and the power is his, because the kingdom is his. Because everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes shelter in him. Remain loyal to the Lord, you chosen people of his, for his loyal followers lack nothing. Psalm 34. And friend, you want to follow an authority who is only honorable and beautiful in every exercise of that authority, right? Well, God is the king who is eternally glorious. He is incapable of dishonor. All he does is beautiful. There are no backroom deals, no shady compromises, no power plays, no arm twisting or abuse or manipulation. Our God is full of grace and truth. And Jesus claims to be from God. He claims to be speaking 
for God, and he claims to be God. And in his life, you see nothing but grace and truth, honorable and beautiful exercise of authority, of authority. For to our Father in heaven belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. And friend, you want stability, right? You want to follow an authority who is all of these things all of the time with no chance of losing office or dying or being overthrown in some coup or replaced by a more dynamic authority figure. And this longing is only natural. You were made for a relationship with this incredible king. This king who is our father in heaven, to whom belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, from eternity to eternity. Not just for a time, not just for a long time, not even for seven decades or seven centuries or seven millennia, but forever. And friends, to our Father in heaven belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So here's our big idea. The eternal, powerful, glorious king is both willing and eager to be your father. The powerful, eternal, glorious king is both willing and eager to be your father. So let me ask you, can you imagine the bliss of following this kind of authority? For some seated here, this is a revelation for you. You aren't sure what to do with such ridiculous, scandalous statements like the eternal powerful, glorious king is eager and willing to be your father. And internally, you are responding like this. Me? Wrecked? Messed up? Broken? Me? This kind of king wants to be my father? Yes. That's his nature. He is a saving, restoring, blessing, giving, generous God. So to forgive your sin and offenses against himself, to heal your brokenness, to remove your shame, to absorb his own wrath against you, he gave his son for you in your place on your behalf so that he might adopt you into his family. And the question becomes, will you trust him? Will you take him at his word that all he wants from you is your everything? He wants you to own up to your desperate need that you don't have any credit to the, bring to the table. You only have need. 
And he wants you to entrust yourself to his care. And I know it's scary. Some of us don't trust easily. But it's the way to life. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end of that way is death. And there's a way that seems like death to man, and the end of that way is life. Trusting in Jesus is the only way to have the eternally powerful, glorious King for your Father. So come, taste and see that the Lord is good. For others here, though, this serves for you as a reminder. Intellectually, you've known this, but have you been living as if it's true? Or are you living like you're an orphan? that you don't have the eternal, powerful, glorious king as your heavenly father? Are you living like you have no such authority who will care for you? Like your father doesn't actually promise only good things and isn't even capable of fulfilling good promises? Are you living as if he doesn't exercise his authority over you in only honorable and beautiful ways, as if he could ever let you down? Are you living like an orphan? And if so, then what God is inviting you into right now in these moments is surrender. Now, in a few minutes, we are going to pray the entirety of the Lord's Prayer together, including this benediction from 1 Chronicles 29. But I want to give you some space of silence to meditate on this big idea. Ask God to help you believe it and to live into it. The eternal, powerful, glorious King is both willing and eager to be your father. Let's take some moments for silence. you join with me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. 
For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.